Dr. Julie Andrews is a proud Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri Woi Warring descendant who's based in Melbourne. This is the second conversation that I've got the privilege of having with Julie. We heard from Julie in the first episode of this special series, the importance of telling the truth and acknowledging what has happened in any part of history, but particularly Australian history. We also heard from Julie about her family, her family background. Um, we heard stories of resistance and unfairness. We heard about her beautiful country of Yorta Yorta. And we talked about the brutal inhumanity and systematic reality of dispossession that sits in Australian history that we, we, we need to come to terms with. It's a great privilege to have a second conversation with Julie. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's go. Julie, thanks for joining me again. I really appreciate your time. Um, if, if I can, I want to start with a little bit of a story from my mum's family, if I can. Uh, so my mum's uh, folk were, uh, were and still are Jewish, and they came from uh, settlements which are uh, probably now in Belarus, because um, the borders were fairly fluid in those, in, in, in those days. Um, and they lived uh, in the Jewish settlements of, you know, on the outskirts of, of, of the towns and cities uh, that they lived in. If we jump forward to the present day, in that period of time, my grandfather came out to Australia in 1927. He picked fruit for two years to afford the fare for my grandmother to come out. They were childhood sweethearts. He was an irascible, um, he, you know, he was an irascible communist um, who didn't like, didn't get on with people that well, but he loved my grandmother. My grandmother had a displaced hip so she, they, didn't, they thought she would never have children. So they were like the two outliers in the two families. And, and you know, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, Moisha, his, his, he, he, he came from a family that were called Scheitels, which is spelled S-H-I-T-L, which is not a great surname to have if you're coming to an English-speaking country. But in, 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 in Australia already, there were some Newmans who were from the family. They called themselves new men, Newman because they were new men in a new country. My, my, my grandmother's family were Goldschmidt's. They came out, my mum was born in 1932 um, in Perth. Eventually they found their way down to Melbourne and then up to Sydney where they settled in Refo country in Bondi as it was then. Um, uh, and they built a life for each other along the way. My brother was born in 1968. I was born in 1969. And we know that, you know, white Australia policy was still around there. Jump forward. 20 odd years and there I am I'm a young history teacher and I'm trying to teach Holocaust history and eventually after a number of years about of, of doing it I had to stop because I'd lost my objectivity I could not teach 15 year olds about what had happened to my people because I was so angry and I was unable to separate myself from the reality that despite some of my family getting out, most of them disappeared into concentration camps and died. And I'm still trying to learn how to deal with that. I think I'm getting better at telling that story now with, with a little bit more understanding. Where we finished up last time in our conversation, we were dealing with the stark reality of Australian history, which is about a form of brutality that can easily be equated to the same sorts of things that my, my mum's family went through. 
if we're going to move forward as a country and tell stories that we can all understand and appreciate and find a way forward, how do, how do we deal with the anger? How do we deal with the intense subjectivity that these stories cause and the pain that they cause? First of all, Phil, thanks for that story, you know, your, your family story. I really enjoyed listening to that. And um, a lot of Aboriginal people really enjoy listening to other family stories about hardship when they arrive here in, in Australia because it situates them as well, you know. We can draw parallels on what was going on in the country because we've experienced it. But, you know, when we hear the way other family groups handled it, it's like, it's, it makes us, you know, come together with understanding. You know, I've been there too. When I was growing up, it was hard in the classroom being the only Aboriginal person sitting there and listening to the teacher talking about history. And I had no place in it. My people had no place in the history. It was always a book about Aboriginal people being hunter and gatherers, carrying spears and boomerangs. I would never go home and tell my family that kind of stuff because it didn't speak to me, you know, but the, the shame that I experienced in the classroom was big. And a lot of my other, all Aboriginal kids that are in the school system, we've, we felt a lot of shame because when, when it was um, the teacher would turn their focus to Australia, it would always be negative things about Aboriginal people. So we'd be sitting there embarrassed, you know, and no wonder we all dropped out at year nine, you know, because who would want to be taught when you go home, you've got all this pride and, and history and culture, rich culture. But when you go into the classroom, it, it was like I would just be petrified inside about because this, all the other kids would turn and look at you and just see you as being something in that book, spear chucker, all that kind of stuff. Now everyone wants to, you know, celebrate Aboriginal culture. But um, it's, it's just, yeah, that thing of being um, the other now, we talk about a lot of that at university, how, you know, the impact of colonisation and history for everyone, it creates this um, idea in people in society's head that anything alien is the other if you're not in the mainstream. So I guess Aboriginal people are used to living on the fringe of Australian society and they've brought that with them a long time now. So when we talk about social mobility for Aboriginal people, the best social mobility is to move with your culture and your identity and be proud of that, about, you know, what you, your, your ancestors have done and suffered for you to be here today. And that's what I've always been told by my, my grandmother. Always be proud of who you are and don't you forget how many of our people have died and suffered for us to live. That's really interesting. And I thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that, Julie. Um, I'm thinking about my Nana now. It's just it's really interesting. My Nana never talked about the past at all. I don't know whether that's because she wasn't that interested in it or, or, or whether that lack of interest was because she just, it was just too much. Um, that, I think they thought of themselves as new people in a new country and they just had to, they just had to keep moving forward because how could you contemplate what was there?
in in the past. I'm really interested in that notion that two things that you talked about there, and, and maybe we can use this as a way to develop the conversation further around pride, history, rich culture. I'm really super interested in the idea of, of the notion of being on the other, of the other and being on the fringe. Uh, I, I, I think any human being benefits from an education in which you learn to appreciate the other and the fringe. Because the reality is in any society, somebody will be other. Somebody will be on the fringe. It's a normal, natural, and perhaps not very nice, but it's a real way of human beings existing with each other. So we have to learn about the other and how we relate to it. We have to learn about the fringe and the, and the core and, and what that does. I'd really like to tap into your expertise as an educator now and start to talk about what an education in Australia might look like at the different levels that helps us all to understand that relationship between what you talked about last time, which was white Australia and Aboriginal Australia. I think that would be a really helpful thing for us to do if we can. Obviously, we could spend days talking about this sort of thing. So anything we do is just an introduction, a little bit of a, a flavour around that. When we were preparing for this conversation, you gave me a really interesting insight into your thoughts about education about Indigenous masses beyond early primary years, because you, you said essentially that, you know, when there's a culture uh, and you infantilise it and you say, well, we, we, we drop it down in the early years, but we don't bring it up to the level that it's supposed to do. You, do you want to talk us through that? Because I think that's such an interesting idea. Yeah, well, um, there's a big reflection today about what is going on in the curriculum and how it is perhaps got holes in it around Aboriginal understanding by, you know, the students. And I'm seeing this at university level because when a lot of my students would arrive 10 to 15 years ago, they were, all had this understanding of the stolen generations, the apology, reconciliation and assimilation. Now we have to go back and teach them all that, you know. It was much easier 10, 15 years ago when there was a big push from the government and groups around, you know, the, the, around Australia, around reconcil reconciling Australia and that. And you, you really see um, the impact of that and the trickle down to all the, you know, communities and just society in general in Australia. And then we saw the primary and secondary curriculum take that up too, because government said, this is, you know, one of the agendas. We're, you know, doing reconciliation. Um, you know, there's all this memorabilia coming out. But we mustn't forget the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission in the 90s around Australia, who were leading the way with um, bringing together all the data to the government and giving them direction on where to go with bringing the community information to the wider population. I mean, you know, that was just, in my mind, would have been the utmost kind of um, the hugest role they could have played. Because I recall seeing all the memorabilia that was coming out being, you know, printed by ATSIC. And there was on language, on culture, and, you know, the different 
states and territories and who was in there and the demographics and what made up them and, you know, unique, the uniqueness of art and stuff. And all this was, you know, filtered out into schools and, and you know, social gatherings and community functions and big, big things, you know. Um, and the government was behind that. And it was, you know, like around that stolen generation, sorry day, deaths in custody, it was like this huge, maybe 10 to 15 years of focus within the curriculum in the schools. It made my job so much easier. Um, but now it's, we're, we're seeing it, you know, students are coming out of primary and secondary with limited understanding now around that. Now, the benefits of having that, that foundation of understanding and learning about the, you know, those, those kind of things filtered into other uh, multidisciplinary subjects that we have at La Trobe that teach law, that teach social work, that teach education, that teach, you know, sociology, you know, and, and you know, legal studies. Understanding Aboriginal community and Australian relations together, that's all important and empowering. And I think students in primary school get it as well because, they, they, you know, they want to, you know, um, multiculturalism was a big thing back then too. So now, you know, what I, I think, you know, the benefits of educating people around language, I mean, there's been calls for Aboriginal language to be introduced in curriculum as well. Yeah, it's, uh, can I just yeah. say, it, just, it, it, it staggers me that we don't do more around the teaching of Aboriginal languages. I mean, in, in the great state of New South Wales, where I come from, you know, every child's got to do 100 hours of language study in a continuous 12-month period in years seven and eight, and then they can drop it. And most kids do, because most kids don't take a language forward. So why wouldn't we be studying Indigenous languages as, 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 as part of that? It just seems to make sense around it. It would seem to give you such a good way to interact with your local community. Because, you know, you, we, we, we talked last time about the, the dangers of assuming that there is a monolithic Aboriginal Australia, but of course there isn't. You know, it's at least 300 different nations or, or mobs or tribes or what, what, whatever the term is that, that, that we use to describe that. I'm, I'm hearing you tell us a story about the dangers of layering a faddish story based on current political sentiment on top of a system as opposed to embedding truth-telling all the way can, through. Can you explain that more to me, Phil? What you yeah, about? absolutely. I think, I think within our country there was, a, there was a place and a time where a whole bunch of factors came together and uh, Australia was suddenly increasingly aware of its history and responded to that uh, uh, really quite genuinely and really quite sympathetically, but it was like the icing on top of a cake. And then over time, the icing has just melted and, and we, we, we've lost that sense of commitment to something that, that we should still remain committed to. I think it's very challenging within culture and it's very challenging within education to um, embed things that bring about substantive change, um, you know. So if I if I, I I've got I've got an uncle or an uncle by marriage, and he's a barrister, and he talks about uh, the, the telling of any story is about weaving strands to a thread, and unless we've got that strand of Aboriginal Indigenous 
history, culture, language, all of it, deeply ingrained in the whole thread of Australian education, then we run the risk that we'll get interested in it in a while because we feel sorry or sympathetic or something, which, which I think is quite patronising, actually, that the, the origins of that sentiment. We run the risk of doing that instead of saying, actually, this is a genuine and real part of our history, our shared history, and we need to be doing this properly. Yeah, well, policy and legislation helps with that and strategies of organisations. Having these kind of, um, you know, social justice and awareness um, issues, uh, it can become embedded within institutions and organisations without having real work, you know. Um, letting people take leadership on this kind of thing, that helps as well. Uh, because, you know, we've, Aboriginal people have, you know, these, these um, pro approaches towards empowering them, but sometimes it's always left to the Aboriginal people to do it, you know, and they're tired because they've got so much other work to do. Welcome the country or sitting on boards or, you know, our elders actually don't retire. They don't have the luxury of staying home and doing the garden. They're usually in the jails, visiting the younger ones, you know, going on the Koori courts to sit there and next to the judges. You mentioned your, your family member who's a barrister. Well, you know, we've got our elders sitting next to judges in, you know, children's court and the magistrate's court and so forth. And, you know, they're sitting there giving um, lectures to, you know, the offending person that's going through the law system. So our elders, you know, play a huge role in our community. So when we talk about education, you know, it's, it's like an ongoing thing, like for our people, like there's different stages, like we'll enter at an early age, but the socialisation of our children is all Aboriginal identity, okay? So we're learning about language, our culture and so forth and our place in our society. And then we go into the mainstream education system and then we got to pull together that stuff as well. And then we, be, then we, hit, then we hit with, you know, the, the youth, the genes step in. And so you, you have to find out where you sit again within society. And, um, and then you're, you know, at the same time, the socialisation of knowing your place, where you are in Australia starts to take place for you as well. So um, by the time you finish high school, if you leave high school and you're Aboriginal, or you go into trade or TAFE or something like that, you come out on the other side, you know, a lot of our people go back to working for our community and our people because they want to uh, make a difference and, and help because they understand what's going on in the community and the hardships. and you know, and they don't judge, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't judge. They, they kind of, like, understand because they've seen it or experienced it in their family or whatever. That, they're important life skill, life skill tools, but they're education experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't have about our people. So that's why it's important that our people are empowered through legislation and places that want to work and, you know, that, are, that have to deal with social work and health and all this public health policy and that. So, yeah, it's, it's quite 
um, our learning continues right through to an elder. And the older you become, the more responsibility you have. And that's just like the way it was, you know, in traditional Aboriginal law. The older you get, the more responsibility you have with culture. But now in community, in urban city living, the older you get as an elder, the more responsibility you have as well. Julia, I, let, let's let's talk about that longitudinal process there because I think that's that's really interesting. Um, if I take us into and we, we talk briefly about this, the notion of the other and being on the fringe. If I, if I talk about the experience of marginalised um, black kids in the United States and the experience of well-intentioned school systems such as the KIPP schools, which are designed to lift kids out of um, challenging socioeconomic situations, help them retain their culture, provide very strong structure and move them forward. Increasingly, what they're finding is that it's not about a program that lasts for a period of time. That if you take a young black kid and you provide this experience, you need to commit to 10, 15, 20 years of mentoring, support, guidance and so on. Because it's recognising that you can't just educate away a problem you need structures you need support you need community around that can you talk to us a little bit about that in australia i know that people like the australian indigenous education um, foundation and the gallery program are starting to grapple with this notion of mentoring and what it looks like and so on can we talk about what a structure of education looks like to support indigenous kids um, moving forward through their schooling, getting them from the primary to the secondary, to the tertiary, into their lives and so on. So We've had these kind of um, frameworks for a while in Australia. Talk to me about them. Well, my, my, my aunt, Hillis Morris, set up Warrawa Aboriginal Secondary College out at Hillsville, outside of Melbourne. And the, the curriculum was a combination of culture and the academic curriculum. And it started from year seven right up to year 12. And a lot, a lot of the students come from all over Australia, but predominantly at the start, at the beginning, they were Victorian students from Aboriginal communities, particularly Yorta Yorta. A lot of Yorta Yorta kids came. So that was about their experience they came because they wanted to go to school with their own mob. They wanted to be with kids they knew. They wanted to be free so they could be, you know, express themselves as an Aboriginal person. So the curriculum was a combination of language and art and sport and Aboriginal elders teaching in the classroom. Um, then we had the academic learning where you had non-Aboriginal people as part of the curriculum. You had to have it registered with the curriculum for Victoria. The independent school, it's still going today. Now it's a girls' school. But at the time, it, it, it was so unique. The kids were, you know, dancing. There was um, around at every public event. And um, it was a co-ed school. But the partnership with um, private schools was continuing so it's like a cultural exchange those private schools now have you know like um, sister schools and they go and visit communities all over remote aboriginal community but with um, the difference with aboriginal schools is and there's one in alice springs too is it's an aboriginal board 
of elders and you know the the curriculum is endorsed by the aboriginal community and you have this at you know aboriginal remote communities where they've got schools as well it's imperative to have the aboriginal people involved in the curriculum and teaching if you want to have aboriginal students um, succeeding in school so we we have models we have models yes, that have do. been tried and have been succeeded how do we get these models out and being used so again these are not just isolated things that happen for a bit but they, it becomes embedded as part of our way of doing things well these schools are, are set up to um, cater to a need for the aboriginal education and the community so you know like if you go to alice spring they've got yipurinya the aboriginal secondary school they've got um, in remote communities, they've got, they've got their own Aboriginal schools, Aboriginal principals. Um, Yirrkala in Arnhem Land is an, is an amazing place where you've got the two-way learning, where you're you know, speaking language in class as well as English. But, yeah, you know, Yirrkala is a wonderful school, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then you've got North Queensland, I think it's in Cairns, you know, there's another school up there. But... You know, I'm a product of the black community school in the 70s that was, you know, set up by Uncle Eddie Marbo and Annie Nedda Marbo. So I was enrolled there, one of the first Aboriginal students there in Townsville. So, and that was a curriculum then too, learning language and song and dance and, and learning about other cultures in the world. Anything that was cultural, we learnt about. So I, ca I can't help but think, Julie, that... Again, it, it's, this takes us back to our first conversation, which is about the importance of listening. It talks about the, the acknowledgement of the past, but it also talks about agency and solution around all of these sorts of things and about working a, working a way forward that addresses the needs. That, and, and there are needs for Australian society as a whole. I, I, I have a view that Australian society can't come into it into a more fulsome sense of what it might become until we have addressed this gaping wound in our history. I think every now and then, when we feel a bit sorry, you know, we address it, but we still haven't embedded it. We still haven't worked out systematic ways of trying to move forward together. I can't help but thinking that education is part of it. So, Julie, it's been, it's been a real privilege sitting here and, and learning from you today, your wisdom, your knowledge, your scholarly insight into all of these matters gives us the opportunity to address all the sorts of things that we've been talking about so far, about the importance of listening, about the importance of a shared story, about trying to address the past and find a constructive way forward. Um, Julie, I think we should have a third conversation, um, and I know you'd like to have one too, about the work you're doing at La Trobe at the moment. So would you like to do that? Yes, please. That'd be great. Excellent. So listeners, we'll be back for a third episode of this special series with Dr. Julie Andrews next week. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.